you're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for September 12, 2021, the 16th Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Peter Walsh. It's based on Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Good morning again. So pleased you've all come here this morning and all those who are streaming in. So, as you know, the word gospel means good news. The first gospel was the gospel according to Mark and our scriptures this morning come from Mark, but this gospel good news is gospel hard news. We are going right to the heart of the gospel, okay? So we are getting three things about Jesus. Who he is, what it means to be the Messiah, and what are the ramifications for his followers. Uh, Justin, could you turn that microphone off? I think the echo comes perhaps from the microphone being on. Uh, The next piece is that we are right literally smack dab in the middle of the gospel. We are at the end of chapter 8, and the gospel has 16 chapters. The other thing is that this is the fulcrum of the gospel. The whole beginning of the gospel, as you remember, begins Jesus calls, baptized on the Jordan River, moves up to the area of the Galilee, and then north into the Gentile territory. But with this passage, the whole gospel hinges and turns down toward Jerusalem and that fateful day of his crucifixion. The passage is very, very challenging, and in some sense, it's a greatest hit. It's that important to us. So let's jump in here. As you know, with Mark's gospel, Mark uses the least amount of words of any of the gospelers. Gospel, according to Mark, is three-fifths the size of Luke and Matthew, and yet each one of these words is packed with meaning And so we find that it says, Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way. Okay, so what is talking about here? First, on the way, uh, the travel. They are literally on their way, moving and traveling. Mark is not actually all that concerned in some sense about their physical movements. When he says on their way, he's talking about their spiritual journey. And as, of course, you know, the early name, the first name for Christianity was the way. And since the gospel is written for us, to say on their way means this gospel is about our spiritual journey. And it says that as they're walking, okay, now any of you, I look out and some of you I know this is true, anybody in the congregation who has a boy knows that if you want to have a conversation with a boy, you have to be moving. Boys do not talk when they're just sitting still. And we also know, research shows, as they say, if you want to have a conversation with a boy, make sure you're not looking at each other. This is why cars are perfect to have conversations with boys. And then oftentimes you cannot come up with the zinger question. You have to sort of warm them up. And I think that that is what Jesus is doing here. He's talking mostly to boys. There are women with him, of course. The answers in this scripture do come from a boy. And he warms them up with the first Gallup, religious Gallup poll. Who do people say that I am, right? And the the answers for who do people say that I am, of course, are the prophets. Some Some say John the Baptist and Elijah. In Matthew, it says, it says Jeremiah. And okay, these are pretty good answers. And then comes the zinger, of course. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Perhaps you might imagine Jesus showing up uh, in your daily movements, perhaps in your car or at your dinner table or at your desk, in asking you that particular question. This is the most foundational Christian question. 
Who is Jesus? And the way we answer this question depends perhaps even on the arc of our lives. If Jesus is a wisdom teacher, well, then you take it one way. If he is Messiah, then you take it another way. And Peter gives the answer, you are the Messiah. This is the first time in the scriptures that Jesus is identified as Messiah in this way. Now, of course, we as the reader know the answer before we went in. The first sentence of the scriptures is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But we do really well in entering the scriptures to suspend what we think we know and to descend into the lives of the disciples as they learn and are formed so that we might learn and be formed also. And so this first time, the so-called confession of St. Peter uh, uh, comes forth. Now, Matthew's Gospel, many of you may remember that Jesus is so enthusiastic with the answer. He says, you know, this has been revealed to you by God, and, and blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And he says, and I, I call you Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the keys of the kingdom. That's all in Matthew's Gospel, not in Mark. Mark moves immediately that Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him, okay? So what we have here, again, for those of you who've done Bible study, is known as the Messianic secret. Over and over in Mark's Gospel, Jesus tells his followers not to talk about him in these terms. And what we have is Peter correctly saying that Jesus is Messiah, but we have a completely different understanding about what that means, what is Messiah. The Hebrew scriptures, of course, are, are flush with uh, predictions and uh, the forecast, the prophecy of the coming of Messiah. During the time between the closing of the Hebrew scriptures, which happened around 400 BC, and Jesus's time, of course, uh, uh, religious thought and revelation continued on. And one of the things that rose up was the idea that Messiah would be a Davidic warrior king. This was a nationalistic, political messiah who would throw off the oppressors and, and be the warrior that David was. This is something that Jesus will have none of. Scriptures tell us, then he began to teach them. When we hear the word teach, this is not like, and he began to chat with them. Anytime the word teaching is used, particularly in Mark's gospel, it is to say that Jesus' teaching is inspired by the power of God in the same way his miracles are inspired by the power of God. In other words, a central thrust of Jesus' ministry, of his who he isness, is to teach us about God, about the inbreaking of the kingdom. And to do so, he must teach us about himself. We are not able to provide the right answers. He already asked what the people say, right? And he then says that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So this whole movement of rejection, suffering, killing, yikes, and rising again, this is all new news, and this is stunning news and stunningly terrible news. In our all revved up preparations that we sent out 
uh, last week, very late, I'm sorry, but you may remember, I think it was Justin that said, or Elizabeth perhaps said it, that, that Peter said this out of love, but what he is about to respond to this whole question of Jesus having to suffer and to die. He says, and he said this quite openly. In other words, Jesus is very open about his suffering, but he's very closed about the fact that he is Messiah. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. My namesake is quite a guy, and uh, to take him aside, he is, he is in some sense taking authority on himself, the way people in authority might take someone aside. Just watch an NBA coach take a player aside once in a while, to take him aside, and he began to rebuke him. The rebuke, the word rebuke, which is so not much used in our contemporary parlance, is a very, very powerful biblical word. And in this case, the rebuke is the same word that Jesus used to still the storm. He, remember, he rebukes the storm, and he rebukes demons and drives them out. And Peter brings the full force of his Petrine ways, and he tries to quietly rebuke Jesus. I'm not so sure Peter ever did anything too quietly, but the full force arrives, and Jesus will have none of it. He will not be patronized by this guy. And turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. So Jesus brings to Peter the full force of God, to his rebuke. And in the rebuke, the power of the rebuke is, get behind me, Satan. How are we to make sense out of this, particularly since he just in Matthew's Gospel, raised up the rock. We move, when we get talking about Satan, always in the New Testament, right to Jesus' temptations. You'll remember that Jesus moves from his baptism, and it says that he is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. For those of you who've been on the Holy Land pilgrimage, you remember what the wilderness looks like. It is a barren desert, and he is driven there. In Matthew and Luke, we get three temptations articulated, but we do not get that in Mark's gospel, which just simply says the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. He was there for 40 days and tempted by Satan, and there were wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. There's no articulation of what the temptations that Satan is attacking with. And now we get the temptation. This is the Jesus temptation, and it is the temptation to not suffer and die. If I had to pick out one temptation for Jesus, I think this is the place I would go. Who amongst us, full human, wants to hear the news that we are to suffer and to die? He also puts Peter in his place. You notice that? When he says, get behind me, Satan. And then he goes on to say, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. This is an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, sentence and worthy of a full day of contemplation by each of us. Where is our mind? What are we setting our mind on? My mother used to say when I was learning to drive, the car will go toward what you look at. So if you look at the curb, you're, the curb, you're gonna drive the car into the curb. And I think that is true with our lives. We drive toward what we look at. 
And are we looking at human things or are we looking at the divine horizon? Jesus wants to change our mind. You're putting your mind on human things. You're putting your mind on divine things. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to change our mind. St. Paul says, calls this putting on the mind of Christ. And Jesus is saying, I want you to think like God. That is really what he's saying. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, now we're moving into biblical language, to moving into the crowd. When he speaks to the crowd, Jesus is speaking to the world, just as when he speaks to the disciples, he's speaking to us. And he begins to teach the crowd, and he invites all to follow him. Now listen to this. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is a different invitation than the invitation that the disciples first received, which was follow me or come and see. And now we have a conditional clause, an if-then, the then, of course, is implied. And here with this if-then clause, I'm reminded of the change in covenants in the Hebrew scriptures. So the first covenant in the Hebrew scriptures is the, the, the rainbow covenant, the covenant given to Noah at the end of the flood, and God basically says, I'm not going to do that again, and just to show you, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky. The second covenant comes a little bit later in the book of Genesis, where Abraham is called, and the holy people, Abraham's people, the holy people of God, are going to be known by the covenant of the circumcision, circumcise your boys. And then we move to the Mosaic Covenant, to the covenant that comes at Mount Sinai. And that has an if-then clause that says, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant. In other words, if you keep the law, then you shall be my people. This same if-thenness now comes to those who wish to follow Jesus. If any want to be my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The demands of following involve denial, the spirituality of denial. And this denial is not simply an asceticism, a denial like perhaps you might deny yourself sugar during Lent. This is a denial of the self-centered self. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He is talking about taking root in the center of your decision-making process and your booting out that mechanism that we all, all have within us, that self-centered selfness. And people are to take up their cross. This is the way of the cross. Now, of course, Jesus has not been, has not been hung and died on the cross yet, but all of his followers would know about the cross. This is, of course, the way of death in Roman, in Roman times, Roman-occupied territories. And this is shocking. Just have to hear this. This is shocking. This is a little bit like Jesus saying to us, uh, y y you know, uh, you, have to, you have to be willing to be electrocuted, right? Or, or, or put to death by syringe, or however we put people to death in prisons. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his incredible book, The Cost of Discipleship, has this line, when Jesus calls a human being, he bids him to come and die. 
That's what this is. That's the weightiness of this. This is a, a come and die-ness kind of phrase. And how might we hear, well, we might hear that the substance of the cross is the burden of love that we take up for the sake of Jesus. Oftentimes, we can take a pass, right? We can, we can take a pass on, on love. And the cross, the call is to take up that burden. Whatever it is, this is not follow your bliss. This is a completely different understanding of fulfillment. And then Jesus goes on, for those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. This is the paradox that is at the heart of the Christian faith and life. And it, it is, when we lose it, we gain it. When we give it away, we receive it. And he then comes back to us with, with two rhetorical questions here. Listen, for what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? The word for whole world in Greek is cosmos, and the word for life can also be translated as souls. And I like the translation, for what will it profit them to gain the cosmos and to lose their soul? And what I love about this, I used to really dislike this, this line, but what I love about this now is this is all put in secular accounting terms. He's talking about an income statement, a profit and loss statement, give and return. How much money do you have in the bank when your bills are due? And what he is saying is, if you follow your own way, when the moment comes, you are bankrupt. This is about spiritual bankruptcy. This is about bankruptcy in eternity, is what Jesus is referring to here. This is about ultimate existential moment. He goes on in Hebraic argumentation to say, those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is BAM! In case you were confused about my message, he uses the word shame to make his point that to be a follower of Jesus is a very serious undertaking. You can find more sermons on our website at www.stmarksnewcanon.org